In Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, a few days before Christmas in 1983, people weren't in an especially festive mood. The military dictatorship had recently collapsed, and the majority of the country was suffering in extreme poverty. Officials were corrupt, the government profited off the backs of the people, and no one trusted each other. Nothing was sacred. Except soccer. Brazilians lived for soccer. It was their greatest source of national pride. Not only was the country home to the greatest player of all time, Pele, but it was also the only country to have won the World Cup three times. After that victory 13 years earlier, Brazil had been given the original World Cup trophy to keep forever, an honor that no one could take away from them, no matter how bad things got. Until the night of December 19, 1983, when the original World Cup trophy was stolen out of its bulletproof case. And Brazil's greatest pride was never seen again. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, the show where we search for everything missing. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps the podcast. This episode, we are focusing on the Jules Rimet Trophy, the original World Cup trophy, which disappeared from Rio de Janeiro on December 19, 1983, its final disappearance in a long line of disappearing acts. Before then, it disappeared from London on March 20th, 1966. And eluded the Nazis during World War II. It's become a sort of modern-day holy grail, as sought after and coveted as the World Cup title itself. Following the Jules Rimet Trophy is not a straightforward task. The trophy was created during a period of global turmoil, and that drama seems to have stuck with it. The story you're about to hear has so many bizarre twists and turns, it's hard to believe it's not about the JFK assassination or the Illuminati, but rather about a relatively worthless one-foot-tall trophy. Brazilian Football Confederation President Julich Cochinha perhaps said it best, quote, the spiritual value of the cup is far greater than its material worth, end quote. Like the Holy Grail, the trophy has taken on a life of its own beyond its physical self. First, we'll track the trophy as it was hidden from treasure-hunting Nazis during World War II, then try to figure out who stole it amid the gangland heists of 1960s London, then try to unravel the mystery surrounding its final disappearance in Brazil. Our first theory is that the trophy was melted down into gold bars immediately following its theft in Brazil. Our second theory considers whether the trophy survived the theft, only to end up gathering dust in a corrupt billionaire's collection. And our third and final theory posits that the Jules Rimet trophy 
may have in fact disappeared long before the Brazilian thieves got their hands on it. To understand how something so small, and delicate even, could cause so much trouble, you have to go back to the beginning. In 1930, a Frenchman named Jules Rimet created the World Cup Tournament for Football, or soccer as the U.S. calls it. Having lived through the First World War, Rimet wanted to unite people through sport, rather than pitting them against one another in deadly war. And since every competition needs a good trophy, Rimet commissioned one from popular French sculptor Abel Lafleur. The trophy that Lafleur produced was a captivating emblem of 1930s style and ideals. A gold figure of Nike, the Greek goddess of victory, holding an octagonal cup aloft. The 30-centimeter figurine was set atop a 10-centimeter four-sided base. From top to bottom, the whole trophy, known at the time simply as victory, was just over a foot tall. Every time a country won the cup, its name and year would be engraved on a side. After each tournament, the winning country would hold on to the trophy until the next competition in four years' time, when it would be passed on to the next winner. Unless a country won the tournament three times, in which case it would get to keep the trophy and FIFA would have to order a new one. The World Cup was an immediate success. The first tournament in 1930 was held in Uruguay, home of the most recent Olympic champions, with 13 countries participating. Uruguay had to build a new stadium for the event, and 93,000 people were in attendance to watch Uruguay beat Argentina in the final. After the success of the first tournament, more countries were eager to get involved, and the competition expanded to 16 teams for the 1934 World Cup. Mussolini, still in the early years of his fascist dictatorship, campaigned hard to host, hoping to capitalize on the sport for propaganda purposes. Italy was chosen to host and indeed won the title, though the tournament was plagued by accusations of referee corruption and unfair calls going in favor of the Italian squad. Though the World Cup had been designed around goodwill and sportsmanship, it was already becoming a proxy for political tensions. That role only increased when France hosted the third tournament in 1938. First, the competition decreased from 16 teams to 15 after Austria was annexed by Germany and had to withdraw. Then, despite being disfavored, the Italian team again won the trophy, wearing black shirts at Mussolini's instruction and raising their hands in the fascist salute. The tensions on display at the tournaments came to a head when World War II broke out shortly thereafter. Ramey and the International Federation of Association Football, known as FIFA, decided to put the friendly competition on hold. Hitler wasn't happy about this. He wanted the chance to show off Nazi Germany's power by hosting and winning the 1942 World Cup. But FIFA rebuffed him, keeping the tournament suspended and storing the trophy in a bank vault in Rome. But as the war continued and the Nazis' reach expanded, rumors started to spread. Hitler was on a quest to obtain important historic and cultural objects from around the world in an attempt to increase his regime's legitimacy. 
Before long, there were rumors that the Nazis were planning to steal the World Cup trophy from the Italians since they couldn't win it through tournament play. FIFA vice president and Italian Football Federation official Ottorino Barassi decided to take matters into his own hands. He secretly took the World Cup trophy out of its bank vault and hid it. When the Nazis came to Rome to take the trophy and found it missing from the vault, they showed up at Barassi's house in Rome's Piazza Adriana. Barassi swore that he didn't have the trophy, that Federation executives had taken it to Milan. Of course, the treasure hunters didn't believe him, and they ransacked his house, but they found nothing. After the war, Barassi revealed that he'd hidden the gold trophy under his bed, in a shoebox. It apparently hadn't occurred to the Nazis that such a valuable object could be hidden in such a careless hiding spot. After canceling another tournament in the wake of the war, the World Cup resumed in 1950. This time, Brazil was to host. Everything went smoothly for the trophy for 16 years. It was renamed the Jules Rimet Trophy after the beloved FIFA president before he retired in 1956. And it passed between the countries that won the tournaments, Uruguay, West Germany, and Brazil. And then in March 1966, the trophy's luck ran out. After Brazil's win in 1962, they had returned the trophy to FIFA in early 1966. In advance of England hosting the World Cup that summer, FIFA allowed the trophy to be displayed in London as part of a stamp exhibition at the Methodist Central Hall in Westminster. The FIFA president at the time, Sir Stanley Rouse, only allowed the trophy to be exhibited on the condition that it would be guarded at all times. And it was. Except for Sunday, March 20th, 1966, when the exhibition was closed and the guard assigned to the trophy had the day off. It was a quiet Sunday with the exhibition room shut and just four guards to keep an eye on the whole building. Despite the official promise to always have eyes on the trophy, the guards weren't overly concerned about it that day. One of them checked on it at 11 a.m., all fine. And then it was lunchtime, so they took turns getting food, going for cigarette and coffee breaks, and going to the bathroom. And when one of them, George Franklin, checked on the trophy around noon, it was gone. This was before the days of security cameras, and no one had seen the thief. No one had seen anything, in fact, except one guard and a woman bringing her children to Sunday school had seen a man in an overcoat loitering near the bathrooms. But that wasn't necessarily suspicious. FIFA and the English Football Association went into a panic. They were hosting the World Cup in less than four months, and they had no trophy. As soon as the public got wind of the theft, an already struggling investigation went off the rails. Scotland Yard was overwhelmed with useless tips coming in from around the world. One man wrote in to say his cuckoo clock had told him where the trophy was. People wrote in from as far away as Chile and Germany, accusing people in their own countries. The British police quickly became an international laughingstock. The Brazilian Sports Confederation's Abraim Tabel called England out, saying, quote, It would never have happened in Brazil. Even Brazilian thieves love football and would never commit this sacrilege. End quote. 
The most elite branch of the Metropolitan Police's organized crime squad was put in charge of the investigation, but they found themselves drowning in a sea of fake tips and theories. How could England host the World Cup if they had no trophy to present? And then, in the midst of the chaos, the thieves got in touch. A man identifying himself as Jackson called the chairman of the football association, known as the FA, and ordered the chairman, a man named Joe Mears, to follow his instructions if he wanted the trophy back in one piece. Jackson told Mears that a package would arrive at Chelsea Football Club the next day and that Mears was to follow the instructions inside. The package arrived that Wednesday, March 23, 1966, three days after the trophy's disappearance. Inside, there were two things. One was a small part of the trophy that had been broken off. Just like how a kidnapper might send a finger or an ear to indicate that the person being held could be killed soon, the thief was demonstrating that they knew how important it was to officials to get the trophy back in more or less one piece. The second thing in the package was a ransom note demanding 15,000 pounds in five and one pound bills. Adjusting for inflation, that's about $260,000 in today's money, and they wanted it all in small bills. The note read, quote, Dear Joe No, no doubt you view with very much concern the loss of the World Cup. To me, it is only so much scrap gold. If I don't hear from you by Thursday or Friday at the latest, I assume it's one for the pot." End quote. Which is to say, they were going to destroy the trophy if they didn't hear from Mears and get the money. The man calling himself Jackson telephoned Mears again to confirm that the parcel had been received. He said, quote, Give me 15,000 pounds on Friday, and the cup will arrive by cab on Saturday. End quote. Jackson would know that Mears was ready to do the handoff when the FA chairman published a notice in the next day's evening news that read, Willing to do business, Joe. And of course, the police were to be kept out of it. Joe Mears did as he was instructed, except for one thing. He told the police. And then, Mears, who suffered from heart problems, promptly went to bed for several days with severe chest pains, leaving Detective Inspector Len Buggy to sort out the exchange. Detective Inspector Buggy instructed Mrs. Mears that when Jackson called to arrange a rendezvous, she would explain that her husband was unable to handle the stress. Instead, her husband's assistant, McPhee, would handle the exchange. Of course, Mears had no assistant named McPhee. McPhee was Detective Inspector Buggy. In Mrs. Mears' initial conversation with Jackson, when she explained the change in situation, she actually described Buggy's appearance incorrectly, giving his age as mid-30s rather than about 50. When Buggy finally spoke to Jackson, he had to explain that Mrs. Mears had just been flattering him by describing him as younger than he actually was. Jackson was already wary of meeting with anyone other than Mears, so it's surprising that Greed still ultimately won out over caution. He agreed to meet Buggy the next day in Battersea Park in South London for the handoff. This indicated to the police that the entire operation hadn't been carefully planned. 
they thought Jackson might be working mostly, if not entirely, on his own. On Friday, March 25th, Buggy had his team in place in advance of the rendezvous. Two of them arrived early in an unmarked car, posing as a couple. Several other unmarked cars took up positions around and near the park, including a van with several policemen. At 3.55 p.m., D.I. Buggy arrived in Mir's car, continuing in his role as Mir's assistant. With him, he had a briefcase with only 500 pounds. The bills were on the edges of each bundle, but the rest was filled with newspaper. The man calling himself Jackson arrived. Buggy's team identified him immediately, spotting a man loitering across the street from the park gates, nervously checking the street for police cars. Instead of approaching him, though, Buggy, sitting in Mir's car just inside the gates, waited for Jackson to come to him. Jackson made sure he wasn't being followed before walking over to the car and confirming that Buggy was McPhee. He immediately demanded that Buggy show him the money. Buggy nervously opened the briefcase. Luckily, Jackson didn't look too closely. With Jackson satisfied, Buggy demanded to see the trophy before he handed over the money, claiming that he was worried he was being set up to be robbed or attacked by Jackson's associates. Jackson, clearly believing Buggy's cover story, reassured him that this was no setup. He would happily take Buggy to the place where the trophy was hidden, where, once Buggy could check the trophy, they would exchange the money for the trophy and go their separate ways. He promised that Buggy would encounter no one else and that there was no subterfuge involved. All Buggy had to do was drive him about 10 minutes to go get the trophy. Buggy agreed, still pretending to be the nervous McPhee. So Jackson got in the car and Buggy followed his directions toward the trophy. But Jackson too was nervous. As they drove, he kept checking to see if anyone was following them. When he spotted the unmarked police van, he knew immediately what it was. Buggy played dumb and pulled over to wave the van past. Jackson explained that in his line of work, you had to recognize these things, which indicated that perhaps he was a more experienced criminal than he seemed to be. When Jackson spotted another unmarked police car, Buggy drove through back streets in order to lose it. But by then, Jackson was jumpy and uneasy. When he spotted the van again, he told Buggy to stop there. He'd retrieve the trophy from its nearby hiding place and return momentarily for the exchange. And then he made a break for it. Unfortunately for Jackson, the police were instantly everywhere. All those unmarked cars pulled over and police jumped out. Jackson was quickly chased down and arrested. Though police were confident they had captured the guilty thief, the World Cup trophy remained at large. The fate of the famous trophy now officially laid in the hands of the jumpy and paranoid man known simply as Jackson. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. Now the story continues. On Friday, March 25, 1966, British investigators set up a sting operation for the man they believed stole the Jules Rimet trophy a week earlier. The man they knew simply as Jackson had demanded a 15,000 pound sum in return for the trophy. 
Unfortunately, when he noticed the police tailing him, Jackson fled in a panic, forcing investigators to arrest him before recovering the trophy. Hauled in for interrogation, the man quickly gave up plenty of information. His name was Edward Betchley. He was a petty thief and 46-year-old veteran of the Second World War. Betchley said he was just an intermediary. A man he referred to as the Pole had paid him 500 pounds to handle the exchange. But the woman who had spotted a man loitering near the bathroom on the day of the theft picked Betchley out of a lineup. And if he'd been able to send a piece of the trophy to Mears, he'd clearly been in possession of it all week. The police searched Betchley's house, but they came away empty-handed. Betchley, desperate to be released, claimed he could retrieve the trophy if he were let out on bail. But the police weren't going to fall for that. Trying again, Betchley claimed that if his girlfriend were able to visit him without being followed to and from the station, the trophy's location would be revealed. The equally desperate chief superintendent allowed this, but it seemed that Betchley was just playing games with them as he refused to give up the trophy's whereabouts even after the girlfriend's visit. With Betchley claiming he told them everything he knew, it looked like the investigation had stalled. Two days later, a week after the trophy's disappearance, a barge worker named David Corbett stepped out of his South London apartment to make a phone call and take his dog, Pickles, for a walk. Pickles was an overactive pup, constantly chewing up furniture, so Corbett wanted him to blow off some energy on that quiet Sunday evening. As soon as he'd put the leash on, though, Pickles made a dash for the tire of the neighbor's car. Corbett followed and found the dog sniffing around a paper-wrapped bundle. He picked it up and tore open some of the paper. A golden figure of a winged woman holding a cup above her head. The words Germany, Uruguay, Italy, Brazil on the base. Pickles had found the Jules Rimet trophy. The dog became an instant celebrity across Britain. A feature film was made about Pickles called The Spy with the Cold Nose, and he made appearances on TV shows. Both the English Football Association and FIFA were thrilled that they'd be able to present the Jules Rimet Trophy to the winner of the 1966 tournament. Incidentally, England's good luck continued that summer when they won the World Cup for the first and thus far only time and got to hold on to the trophy for another four years. As for Betchley, he was sentenced to two years in prison for, quote, demanding money with menaces, end quote, but he never revealed any more information before he died of emphysema in 1969. So who had stolen the trophy? Everyone has a theory. Most people assume Betchley was the mastermind and had gotten off easily, but considering he'd clearly been working with at least one other person, the police weren't so sure. Also, the question of who put the trophy in a driveway remained unanswered until May 2018, when a new theory was introduced. A man named Gary Kugelaire claims his uncle Sid, a known London gangster of the 1960s, known as Mr. Crafty, stole the Jules Rimet trophy for kicks. According to Gary, Sid and his brother Reg, Gary's father, went to the exhibition hall on that fateful Sunday in 1966 to case out security around the trophy. 
Sid was surprised to find there was no security outside the room where the trophy was being kept and easily broke in without attracting notice. Once inside, he cut the chain on the trophy case. He lifted out the trophy, surprised at how light it was, and hid it inside his jacket. After they made a break for it, Reg and Sid quickly realized that there wasn't much they could do with the trophy. In theory, the goal would have been to make money off of it, but considering how light it was, they figured it couldn't be worth much melted down, and there was no way they could sell it as it was. Plus, they didn't want to be remembered as the guys who destroyed the World Cup. So the only option was to return it and try to extract a ransom price in the process. Gary claims that Sid wrote the note in the initial parcel sent to Joe Mears. He recruited his friend Edward Betchley to handle the negotiations, while in the meantime, the trophy was hidden in Reg's father-in-law's coal shed. Which means that Betchley was actually telling the truth about just being the middleman. Things went wrong when Betchley got arrested, and Sid and Reg just wanted to return the trophy without getting caught. Gary claims not to know how the trophy ended up where Pickles found it, so presumably the brothers dumped the trophy in a random driveway, assuming that whoever found it would call the police. Gary does say, though, that everyone in their family and all of Sid's gangland associates knew that Sid and Reg had stolen the Jules Ramey trophy. Apparently, Sid boasted for years that he had been the first Englishman to lift the World Cup months before the team won the tournament later that year. In fact, the secret was apparently so open that both men had wreaths in the shape of the trophy at their funerals to commemorate the heist. And the fact that they were never caught, a testament to their relationship with their underworld connections. The Jules Rimet Trophy reappeared just in time for the 1966 World Cup, but its adventures weren't over yet. In 1970, after England handed it back to FIFA, Brazil won the World Cup for the third time. Which meant that the trophy was theirs to keep, and FIFA would have to make a new World Cup trophy. For a country that loves soccer as much as Brazil does, getting to keep the Jules Rimet Trophy was one of the highest possible honors and a cause for national celebration. The official handoff happened at the 1974 World Cup when the new trophy was inaugurated. Brazilian football legend Pelé, who was retiring after having led Brazil to all three World Cup victories, came back one last time for the ceremony. He held the Jules Rimet trophy aloft next to the new trophy, which would be awarded to all future champions. And then the Jules Rimet trophy was retired to Brazil, where it was displayed around the country before returning to the offices of the Brazilian Football Confederation. There, in Rio de Janeiro, on the ninth floor of a building on the Rua del Fondega, the trophy was displayed in a bulletproof glass case. And there it stayed. Or there it should have stayed. But less than 10 years later, it disappeared again. In 1983, Brazil wasn't in a good place. The military dictatorship was slowly on its way out after nearly 20 years of brutally oppressive rule, and the society bore the fresh wounds of violence and repression. Communities were deeply divided. The majority of the country was kept in abject poverty by the wealthy minority, and people trusted neither each other 
nor the authorities, nor, for that matter, any establishment. And the Brazilian Football Confederation was one such establishment. As much as Brazilians loved football, the Confederation was seen as a corrupt, exploitative organization in a country with serious and blatantly obvious economic divisions. This conflict came to a head at around 9 p.m. on the night of December 19, 1983, when a few men broke into the Brazilian Football Confederation offices on the Rua Alfândega. The night guard, Joel Batista Maia, said the men surprised him as he was locking up. An older man, he didn't put up much of a fight as they tied him up and took his keys, going up to the ninth floor where the trophies were kept. As we mentioned, the Jules Rimet trophy was in a bulletproof case, but only five of the six sides were bulletproof glass. The sixth was the back panel which was attached to the wall. Which meant that the thieves were able to wrench the case off the wall and break into it through the back, taking out the trophy. They took several other trophies as well, the Equitava, the Copa Harita de Oro, and the Copa Independencia. Incidentally, it turned out that there was also a replica of the Jules Rimet trophy stored nearby, in the same room, though not on display. It was presumably to use as a decoy whenever the trophy was taken out of the offices. The thieves had no way of knowing which was the real one, but they left the fake and took the original. When the theft was discovered, the country exploded in an uproar. How could any Brazilian care so little about the trophy that symbolized the country's dominance at football? It immediately became a source of national shame, striking at the core of Brazil's self-image. This was only compounded by the memory of the smug Brazilian reaction to the 1966 theft in England. If you'll recall, the head of the Brazilian Sports Confederation at the time had said that such a theft would never happen in Brazil because even Brazilian thieves loved football. And now he and all Brazilians had been proven wrong. In his public statement, the Brazilian Football Confederation president, Julich Cuccino, attacked the thieves' patriotism. He called on all Brazilians to help find the trophy, saying, quote, the spiritual value of the cup is far greater than its material worth. But with political upheaval at the front of everyone's minds and Brazilians already viewing the football confederation as corrupt, Cuccino wasn't able to unify the country as he'd hoped. As horrified as people were by the theft, it seemed indicative of larger issues in Brazilian society. In his statement, the famously outspoken Pele turned the issue political. Quote, it is not the fault of the thieves, but of the authorities, he said, because the people are desperate, without money and without food, end quote. The concern among the police and the football confederation was that the trophy would be melted down so that the gold could be sold. This was a relatively common practice in Brazil at the time, that anything made of gold, if stolen, would be melted down into gold bars in order to be sold anonymously. Hoping to head this off, they offered a reward, and the Football Confederation publicized that they would be willing to negotiate with the thieves. But no one ever got in touch. With little hope that the trophy had not already been melted down, the police began looking for the perpetrators. 
The first suspect in the investigation was the night watchman, Joao Batista Maya, as his story kept changing. For example, he vacillated between whether there had been two or three attackers. Police also held four other low-level current and former employees of the Brazilian Football Confederation for questioning. All of them, including Maya, were released within the week. On January 27, 1984, three men were arrested and a fourth detained after a former convict, Antonio Seta, said that one of them, a man known as Peralta, had asked for his help in stealing the cup. Seta claimed he had refused, of course, because he was a patriot. After the arrest, the police claimed that Peralta, actually a quiet man named Sergio Pereira Alves, who ran the insurance division of a bank, had confessed to being the mastermind behind the heist. The police's story was that Peralta had planned the theft after visiting the Brazilian Football Confederation offices to scope out the trophies. He'd recruited a decorator named Jose Luis Vieira da Silva and a retired cop named Francisco Jose Rocha Rivera to steal the trophies and source the money. Then they'd handed off the trophies to Antonio Pugliese, a jeweler and gold dealer who'd melted the trophies down in order to sell them. Commander Braga of the federal police said the Peralta's confession confirmed their greatest fear. The famous Jules Rimet trophy had been destroyed. But then things got messy. Remember, the Brazilian police weren't considered the most trustworthy. There were deep divisions between regional and federal police, in part because of the years of military dictatorship. So, after the federal police released their assessment, the state police pushed back, asserting that despite the confession, there was insufficient evidence to charge Peralta and his alleged co-conspirators with the crime. It came out shortly thereafter that Peralta had been held and interrogated in inhumane conditions. He hadn't been allowed to sleep or eat for three days until he confessed to the crime. When these truths came to light, the police had to release the men without charge. The state police also alleged that the federal police had made a mistake in not arresting Seta, the former convict who had accused Peralta and the others in the first place. But they had no evidence connecting him to the crime either. The investigation and surrounding trials continued for years, implicating a number of people who were just as quickly exonerated. As it dragged on, the public slowly stopped paying attention, and the country tried to move on. The world and the Brazilian people generally accepted the official story that the Jules Rimet trophy had been reduced to anonymous gold bars and was lost forever. A new trophy, a replica of the original was presented to the Brazilian Football Confederation in 1984, less than a year after the theft, and the police hoped that the national shame and their failure to solve the mystery were out of the public eye. Later that year, Peralta and the other three were charged alongside an Argentine gold dealer named Juan Carlos Hernandez, though the case stretched out over several years. It wasn't until 1988 that a judge convicted the five of them and sentenced them to prison to little fanfare. Throughout the trials, the men continued to deny their involvement, 
though over time some of them seem to have more information to add to the case. In particular, Hernandez, the Argentine gold dealer. From the beginning, Hernandez testified that he never melted down the Jules Ramey trophy. In fact, when his metal foundry was tested for the trophy's gold, the traces found didn't match the Jules Ramey at all. In the 1990s, after he was already in prison, Hernandez said that an Italian collector had commissioned the theft in order to have the Jules Ramey trophy for his private collection. Incidentally, Hernandez was one of the only ones to ever face jail time for the conviction. In a quirk of the Brazilian judicial system, the men hadn't been in custody during the four years of trials, and so, by the time they were convicted, most of them were either dead or had fled the country. Hernandez only served most of his sentence because he was already doing time for drug trafficking. And then, just as it seemed that the case had finally been put to bed, things became more bizarre. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, let's continue our story. In 1988, five men were convicted of stealing the Jules Ramey Trophy from the Brazilian Football Confederation in 1983. However, a man named Juan Carlos Hernandez, the only man to serve time for the crime, maintained his innocence. A strange death in the coming year would make his claims of innocence start to seem less and less ridiculous. On December 28, 1988, a lawyer named Antonio Carlos Arana was found murdered outside of Rio. The police held a 27-year-old man named Valdesi Francisco de Oliveira in connection with the murder. Oliveira quickly claimed that a trafficker known as Carlinos Pepe had killed Arana. According to Oliveira, the trafficker had killed Arana for not sharing the gold that had resulted from melting down the stolen Jules Rimet trophy six years earlier. He even accused employees of Casa Masson, one of Brazil's largest jewelers, of melting the trophy, though he either couldn't or wouldn't identify them. It didn't take long for the police to acknowledge that Aranha had been involved in drug and stolen gold trafficking. And indeed, the police detective in charge of the case stated at the time that he believed the murder should reveal those involved in the theft of the Jules Ramey trophy. Which would suggest that even the police weren't sure they'd gotten the right people when they convicted Peralta, Hernandez, and the others. Or perhaps they believed that there was a much broader conspiracy at work. The problem is, after all the questions left unanswered and the Brazilian police's spotty track record with the facts of the case, it's hard to know if the police were telling the truth, or indeed, if Oliveira hadn't just made up the story to get attention. So what do we know for sure? We know that the Jules Ramey Trophy was stolen from the Brazilian Football Confederation's offices in December 1983. And we know that it was never seen again, at least not by the public. The police story, which was generally accepted by the Brazilian public and the rest of the world, was that Peralta, Hernandez, and their crew had stolen the trophy along with a few others. They melted all of them down into anonymous gold bars within hours of the theft. Then the gold was sold to dealers and traffickers. Peralta, Hernandez, and the others may have been convicted, 
but their involvement was never completely proven. Hernandez, who is supposed to have melted the trophy down to gold, swore not only that he never did, but also that the heist was commissioned by an Italian collector, which means that either the wrong men were convicted, or the trophy hadn't actually been destroyed. If you believe the later police theory that the 1988 murder of Aranya was connected to the heist, that supports the idea that either some or all of the men convicted were innocent, though it doesn't clear up the question of whether or not the trophy was destroyed. While most people tend to stick with the most straightforward story, that someone melted the trophy down, the lack of any proof means that even the police were just guessing. In fact, one of the police officers who ran the original investigation has said in recent years that he doesn't actually believe the Jules Remey was melted down. He admitted that, in fact, they had no idea what happened to it. In other words, the police needed to seem like they were in control, and so they went with the explanation most likely to wrap things up quickly. There's also one other major problem with the official theory that the trophy was melted down. The Jules Rimet trophy wasn't solid gold. In fact, it was silver with just a gold exterior. So there's no way it could have been melted down into enough gold to be worth much. But most people, including apparently the Brazilian police, didn't know this. The renowned trophy was known as a golden statue, and this confused most of the world into thinking it was solid gold. The thieves could still have tried to melt it down, only to discover that it wasn't pure gold. Though that means the trophy would still have been destroyed. That's possible. Though it doesn't make the possibility that it was stolen and sold to a collector any less likely. Also, if you're familiar with melting down gold, wouldn't you realize that the trophy didn't feel heavy enough? Which means that the trophy still could be intact, stowed away in someone's house. But there's another reason to suspect that the original World Cup trophy may not have been melted down for its gold in 1980s Brazil. Because the real Jules Rimet trophy might have disappeared decades before, before Brazil even won the World Cup in 1970. In 1997, a replica of the Jules Rimet trophy came up for auction through Sotheby's in London, in the estate of a recently deceased jeweler named George Bird. It wasn't worth much, after all. It was a bronze copy with a gilded exterior. But the trophy ignited a bidding war between two determined buyers and ended up selling for 254,500 pounds. That's over $500,000 today. Far more than a cheap copy should have been worth. In fact, the only reason anyone would pay that much is if they knew it wasn't actually a replica. If they suspected that it was, in fact, the real thing. Back in 1966, when the Jules Rimet trophy had been stolen in London, the English Football Association, the FA, had decided to take drastic measures. After Pickles recovered the original trophy, England didn't want to risk another possible theft or disappearance before the World Cup final. So, FA Secretary Dennis Follows decided that the best solution was to have a secret replica to use for public appearances. Now, technically, any unauthorized replica of the trophy was illegal, as FIFA held the sole copyright. 
But Follows wasn't about to wait around for the FIFA bureaucracy to make a decision. So, as soon as he had the original trophy back, he took it to the jeweler George Bird and asked him to make an exact replica, swearing him to secrecy. Only after that did Follows ask FIFA for official approval to order a replacement trophy made. But FIFA unexpectedly denied his request, citing unforeseen issues that had arisen when the possibility had been explored in 1934, which made Bird's replica illegal and secrecy even more important. In April 1966, just a few weeks later, the West Germans reached out to FIFA and offered to make a high-quality replica within just a few weeks. FIFA having considered the wisdom of having a copy available for security purposes, accepted the West German offer and passed it along to Follows and the F.A. But Follows turned it down, claiming a replica was no longer necessary as all public appearances by the trophy before the tournament had been canceled. While this was true, the real reason was that Follows had Bird's replica. Working from the original, Bird made an exceptional copy in just a few weeks. It had a bronze interior as opposed to the original silver, but otherwise it was impossible to tell the difference. The replica made its debut when England won the World Cup that year. On the field, the players were handed the original trophy for their celebrations. But according to former police officer Peter Weston, as soon as the players returned to the locker room, Weston and two other specially picked officers were on hand to swap out the original for the replica. The F.A. and the police decided that they couldn't be too careful after the theft that spring, and the players couldn't tell the difference anyway. For the next four years, whenever the trophy was displayed in England, it was the replica rather than the original. Though only a very select group of people even knew the replica existed. In 1970, in time for the World Cup in Mexico, England returned the Jules Rimet Trophy to FIFA. And just a few months later, Brazil won it for the third time. Since the replica didn't officially exist and couldn't be acknowledged, it was considered virtually worthless and was returned to George Bird. But when Bird passed away and his replica came up for auction in 1997, the FA quietly notified FIFA of its existence. At this point, the FA was willing to settle for a slap on the wrist and reveal the replica. Because over the years, several people involved in the switching of the trophies in 1966 and the return of the original to FIFA in 1970 had begun to worry that perhaps they had returned the wrong one. What if they had returned the copy and the real Jules Rimet trophy had been sitting in George Bird's house for nearly 30 years? When the trophy went missing from Brazil in 1983, it made it impossible to check whether, in fact, it was a replica. Worried that the secret might get out and drive up the price, FIFA authorized the FA to anonymously bid for the trophy on their behalf and to pay whatever price it took to get the original trophy back. But when the bidding started in 1997, it turned out that they weren't the only ones with inside information. Another anonymous bidder was also willing to spend a fortune to get the trophy. Between the two of them, they drove the price up to the absurd 254,500 pounds that it eventually went for. 
Needless to say, George Bird's family was shocked, as was the auction house. After the sale, the new owner was revealed to be FIFA. While the other bidder was never revealed, people suspect that it was in fact the Brazilian Football Confederation. As soon as FIFA had the trophy, they took it to be tested to verify whether it was in fact the original, as the FA suspected. It turned out that the FA was wrong. Just as the world had believed all along, England had handed back the original Jules Rimet trophy and given George Bird back his replica. FIFA had just spent more than $500,000 by today's standards on a trophy worth about $2,500. But there's another theory that suggests the original Jules Rimet trophy wasn't stolen in Brazil. It posits that the original Jules Rimet trophy may not have been seen in public since 1954. In 1954, West Germany won the fifth World Cup tournament. Less than 10 years after World War II and the country's brutal split into the Soviet-backed East Germany and the U.S.-supported West Germany. This was a huge moment for the West Germans. The struggling country came together, rallying around the team and the trophy they'd won. But when the Jules Rimet trophy reappeared on the world stage at the 1958 World Cup in Sweden, it looked markedly different. Contemporary experts Joe Coyle and Jim Lynch have analyzed photographs of the 1954 trophy and the 1958 trophy and have noticed a number of changes. The 1958 trophy is noticeably bigger than its predecessor, and the Nike figure and her dress are slightly different. The base is also much larger and taller, with more room for country names to be engraved. Now, the mystery of the base was solved in 2015, when the original base was found hidden away in FIFA's basement archives. The assumption is that, when West Germany won the fifth World Cup, FIFA quietly made a new base for the trophy, so their name could be added. Jules Rimet's original rules for the tournament had stipulated that each winner's name would be engraved on one side of the base. But with a four-sided base, there hadn't been enough space for West Germany's name. Contemporary FIFA officials have assumed that West German officials asked FIFA to change the shape of the base so their name could be added. It's a bit weird that FIFA didn't publicize the changes, though, and only contributes to the mystery. But having FIFA commission a new base doesn't explain the changes in the trophy itself. No. Nor does it explain why West Germany offered multiple times over the years to create high-quality replicas in a short period of time, which would suggest that they had a mold ready to use for a replica. In fact, the replacement trophy given to Brazil shortly after the 1983 theft was made in West Germany. Did the West Germans simply not return the original Jules Rimet trophy to FIFA in 1958, instead returning a not-quite-perfect replica? It's worth noting that 1954 wasn't that long after the Nazis had tried to steal the trophy from FIFA Vice President Ottorino Barassi. Maybe some officials in the German Football Association still coveted it, even after the fall of the Nazi regime and simply didn't want to give it back in 1958. If that were the case, the replica should have been perfect since whoever made it would have had the original to copy. 
That's how George Bird, the English jeweler who made the 1966 replica, made one that fooled even FIFA. The only reason they wouldn't have had the original to copy is if it was stolen sometime between 1954 and 1958 while in Germany's possession. West Germany in the 1950s wasn't doing so well economically. It was still recovering from the ravages of the Second World War and the economic devastation that followed as a result of the Yalta Conference. Someone could definitely have wanted to steal the trophy for the same reasons that everyone presumed the Brazilian thieves did in 1983. And it would also make sense that the West German government, desperate to maintain the PR gains of the World Cup win, would try to keep the theft quiet by quickly making a good enough replica to return to FIFA. In that case, it could have long ago been melted down, broken apart, or hidden away in an ostentatious collection, long before it ever got to Brazil. All evidence suggests that this is the most likely theory. West Germany never explained why it had molds to create a replica of the Jules Rimet. The trophy the country returned in 1958 had clear differences from the original, and we can only assume that they were forced to make a replica. Agreed. Whatever happened in the years it spent in West Germany, the trophy that left was not the same as the one entered. Therefore, the trophy that was stolen from Brazil in 1983 was not the original Jules Rimet. The journey of the Jules Rimet trophy is a bizarre, alluring saga. It has traveled thousands of miles, been passed between the hands of champions, and survived some of the greatest conflicts of the 20th century. It's sought after not because of its value or beauty, but rather what it represents. A time when countries around the world forget conflict and political struggle for a respite of friendly, intense competition in a beautiful game. Perhaps the Jules Rimet trophy will appear again to act as a symbol of its founder's vision. But with or without it, the World Cup goes on and carries forth the legacy of Jules Rimet, a man who sought to use sport as a platform to forget about the woes of a troubled world. Thanks for tuning in to Gone. If you like the show, you can subscribe for more episodes on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we'd really appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. You can tell us your theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, or at Parcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Kate Thorman and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.